Well, good to see you this morning. We are kicking off a new series. Uh, in fact, it's our summer book series here at South Everett. We, uh, we, we read through a book together every summer. I thought it would be apropos that we're, since we're in a library that we do a summer book read. If you don't like this book, you can pick any other book in the library. Uh, but I hope you will like this book, and I think that you will enjoy this book. I determined last January to have us read Christians in the Age of Outrage. Uh, it was an author by the name of Ed Stetzer. He's well-known nationally. He's known internationally. And I thought we'd read it together at the beginning of certainly what might be one of the most contentious and heated political seasons that our nation has ever gone through. I thought back in January that it's usually in July and August when this kicks off, and it will go and go and go and go until November of 2020. There will be more vitriol as a part of this cycle than I think we've ever experienced as a nation. And far from a series centered around politics, because we're not a political church, uh, our hope is that through this study is give us an opportunity to consider our response as disciples of Jesus Christ to a highly polarized and rapidly digitalized world, right? It's very polarized, it's very digitized, and that just adds and adds and adds to the cycle of outrage. So how might followers of Jesus respond when their worldview, our worldview, which is informed by the gospel, no longer fits neatly within the framework of any major governing body? Has anyone thought about that? That the values we ascribe to, we can't match to any specific group that's ready to lead this country forward. How does one engage in civil dialogue on internet platforms that are void of genuine relationship? Has anyone wondered about that? How do I have a civil conversation with someone I don't know on the internet? Because that seems to be the place where we play these days. We go on the internet to have our dialogues and our disagreements and our discords, but void of relationship, conflict gets really ugly. Because relationship is the grace that has us work in conflict effectively. We have to have a love for one another. We have to care about each other. And then I wonder too, is there space to pause and reflect anymore in the midst of endless Twitter wars and news cycles? When do we get a break? Finally, what does a faithful follower of Jesus do with the anger and the frustration they have when they look at the society that we live in today. This is why we're doing this series, because I think a lot of us wonder about these questions and how will I behave and how will I act and what is my role as a disciple of Jesus Christ over the next 14 to 15 months and then after. So our study companion for this series, because we are studying the Bible, this is a companion that goes along next to it. It's titled Christians in the Age of Outrage. The tagline under it is how to bring our best when the world is at its worst. Ed Stetzer wrote this book with the expressed intent of helping followers of Jesus move from one place of contributing to the Age of Outrage to effectively engaging our culture with the hope of the gospel. I think I have a picture up there, Zach, that I want you to put up so we can see exactly what it is that we're going to be trying to do here. This is it. This is the leap that we're trying to make as a, as a generation of people, moving from a place of contributing to the age of outrage. And if we're honest, we all have at some level contributed to the outrage that's taking place. When we get on our high horse or our, our, our pedestal and decide that we're going to make a proclamation about something, when we decide it's more important to be understood than to understand, we're contributing to the outrage. But how do we move from that 
to a place of effectively engaging the culture as disciples of Jesus. This is what we're here for, is to engage this culture. So Chris Nixon, Pastor Chris Nixon, and I have crafted a series of four messages to coincide with the themes addressed in this book. So there's three parts to this. There's four parts to our series, which will give you a little extra time to read. Uh, but we want you to take a look at this, uh, to engage it with us. And our hope is that each of us will take time to engage this text before engaging in any heightened political or cultural processes that we are now participating in as a nation. Can we all make that declaration that before we go out and say anything on the internet about anything related to politics or culture that we will take a time to read this because the landscape has changed dramatically. Our nation has changed dramatically at the same time that the internet showed up. And that makes for kind of a perfect storm if we're not careful. It also provides an opportunity for great engagement if we choose to do it well. So the four topics, the four things we will be considering in this series is how, and what we'll cover today, how to live in a post-Christian context. We'll get into that in just a minute. Secondly, next week, Pastor Chris will be talking about a biblical perspective on righteous anger. Because anger is not the problem. Anger is a God-given emotion. Outrage is the problem. And Chris Nixon will get into that next week. We're going to have a week on viewing our world through the lens of the gospel. What does it mean to have a Christian worldview or a biblical worldview? Uh, And then finally, what it looks like to love our digital neighbors. So we'll have a whole week on loving our digital neighbors. Because when Jesus talked about the world and loving our neighbors, things weren't digital yet. But now they are. So we still love our neighbor next to us. But we also love the neighbor next to us on the Internet, which could be on the other side of the world. But these are the topics that we'll be engaging kind of in tandem with this book. But this morning, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the what and why behind our current cultural and political outrage, while also investigating the life in the context of the prophet Daniel. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Daniel chapter 1. We'll also have it up on the screen. We'll be talking about that, his life, his context, the context and the place where the book was written and what was going on politically, because things were happening politically within the body of Christ, even before Jesus was born, the nation of Israel, God's oldest friends. There were political things happening with them internally. There were political things happening to them externally. And so these are important things for us to talk about today. But as our culture has shifted farther and farther away from its Judeo-Christian ethic, which you might all say, amen, there was a time when you remembered this culture looked more like the, the Bible that we ascribe to. In those days, I would suggest, are over. Those days have moved past us. Those who once held nominally Christian views are moving toward a non-affiliation with faith. Does that make sense? I want to show you something here that's laid out in Stetzer's book. That he talks about in this book, he talks about people who are non-Christians or other religious or secular, just no, no real uh, um, uh, allegiance to any particular Christian faith. And that there, the, in, the past, in the past there was a cultural divide there between cultural Christians, which were people that say, well, I live in the United States, therefore I'm Christian, right? And then you have this group of congregational Christians, which are people that, sh- that, that have some sort of tie to a local church. When I go to celebrate or worship, I go to South Everett, or I go to Mill Creek, or I go to Eastside Foursquare, or I go to South Everett Community Church, or Bible Baptist, when I go. 
but I don't know if anyone would know my name if I showed up. There's that group of people who would ascribe to faith. And then there's convictional Christians, which are people that say, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. They've made a commitment with their lives to say, I will move from belief to behavioral following. I will let my worldview be shaped by the Bible. That's that group of people. Over time, what Stetzer suggests, and this is why we feel some of what we do, is that before the cultural divide lumped these individuals together, and as things have moved on, the divide has shifted. And people who are, would, have once considered themselves con- uh, congregational Christians or cultural Christians have moved more into the mainstream of culture uh, or a secular consensus. And it's not that people who are sold out for Jesus and living their whole lives for him have somehow decided that it doesn't satisfy any longer. It's just that this group that was once kind of lumped down here is now lumped up here, and we're feeling, we, anyone who would ascribe to following Christ, is feeling a little bit like, I don't know if I fit here anymore. Does anyone feel that underlying tension? Stetzer speaks to it specifically in his book, especially in the first part, and this is important for us to know. Why does it feel like things aren't the way that they used to be? Another picture Zach's going to put up. This cultural forking that has taken place in recent years has had a deep emotional impact on Christians, especially Christians in the West. It's created a deep sense of grief and loss that has been difficult for many people to articulate. I don't know exactly why I'm feeling the way that I am, but I'm feeling that way. And as our cultural landscape shifts, we're invited by God to reflect his faithfulness throughout history. It's not like he's just, we're hoping he'll be faithful now. We're invited to reflect on his faithfulness throughout all of time and view our present challenges, the one that we're dealing with today, as opportunities to advance the hope of the gospel. Amen? Amen. What we look at now is an opportunity to do one of two things. Either run and hide... Or engage the world with the light of Christ. The opportunity is now here in this country more than it's ever been. And for people who are dedicated to Christ in our time while we worship, as we listen, I hope our hearts are skipping a beat or pounding twice as hard because the Lord is doing something. But it ain't going to come easy. We've seen what Easy's done. Easy has sent a bunch of people that used to sort of follow to not following so much anymore. Because there wasn't something compelling enough. People need something that costs them. People invest in things that are costly, that are risky, that cause us to do something that makes a change in the lives of other people. And I would suggest that just a group of people for the last 50 years may be sitting in seats in places like this, but not adding a vacation Bible school component to it, or a Rancho de Sus Ninos component to it, or a love my neighbor regardless of what they believe component to it, have found that there's not enough to apply the Holy Spirit's power to. In this room, we can do this because we're like-minded thinkers. It's the power of the Holy Spirit who we need once we leave this space to engage with people who believe maybe differently than we do. Amen? So why does God invite us to these considerations? Well, it's because his word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. His word is our help to remember what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do in the future. We go to God's word 
more than anything else to find those things. Because as we breathe it in, something happens. You've experienced it. Woken up maybe feeling a little uh, less than satisfied with the condition of your life or the current state or anxious or depressed about something or angry, holding a feeling of bitterness and resentment. And you go to God's word and have you ever walked up from time in his word and it's changed? Yep. Hebrews 9, 10, 11 did that to me yesterday. Don't know why. It was just some stuff in there. I woke up. I'm like, I have hope for today that I didn't have when I got up this morning. This is important, this idea that we engage in spaces and in times and in places where things are looking darker. Why are we supposed to do this? Because if we don't, let's just talk about if we don't for a minute. Can you put the fork back up there for a minute, Zach? A fork in the road means you can choose to go one way or the other, but you can't stop. You're going one way or the other. I'll tell you that if we go one way and decide that we aren't going to engage what's happening to us and around us, we will simply move deeper into our like-minded circles of people and diminish our ability to impact the communities with the gospel. We'll do that. Because we're afraid of change. We just want to stay with people that believe like us because it's challenging to go out there and do something different. Or we can make a different choice. If we keep God and His Word as our anchor, we will be reminded of and encouraged by His record of using people in dark places to shine most effectively. That's why we go back to His Word. I've entitled the message today, The New Babylon. It's next to New York and New Jersey, and it's actually Seattle in this region. The new Babylon is actually the United States of America. The older, newer Babylon is Western Europe. The one that's a little bit younger than us or older than us, but not as old as Europe, is Canada. Ed Stetzer's a Canadian. He wrote this book because what's happening here happened there 20 years earlier. He's writing to say, hey, American church... Figure some stuff out that we didn't figure out in time. That's what Ed Stetzer is talking about. But the New Babylon, the Bible is chocked full of exile narratives. Narratives of exile all through the Bible from Adam and Eve when they were exiled from the garden to Moses when he was exiled to the desert to John the Baptist who was exiled once in the desert to prepare to come back and prepare the way and then exiled again and beheaded. That's an exile to Jesus who was exiled on the cross. No more human being in the history of all human beings has been more exiled than Jesus on the cross for that moment when he was separated from the Father completely, but then restored, reunited, going all the way to John, the disciple of Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved, exiled on the island of Patmos, where he wrote and scribed the book of Revelation. Exile is just part of the gig. (laughs) Unfortunately for us, the reason why we feel squirrely is because exile has not been a part of our gig. For most of us in our lifetimes, we've been embraced because of our Judeo-Christian ethic. I've always read passages of Scripture that say, following Jesus will cause you to leave your mother and your father. And I'm thinking, well, how come they brought me here? The Word of God, which has been true forever has not translated well to this culture because this culture has been different. The American culture, since the Declaration of Independence has been signed, has been kind of a pseudo-Christian narrative. It hasn't fit the story for most time when the culture embraced the narrative of the gospel. 
That has not been the places where the Bible and the Word of God and the truth of the Spirit has most shined and most excelled and gone forward at such an incredible rate. You want to see where people are coming to Jesus left and right around the world? It's in the Middle East. It's in Africa. It's in South America, Southeast Asia. People are coming to Jesus like never before. And in fact, people are sending missionaries to the United States for the first time. They're like, why do we need missionaries? Because we're blind and we don't realize how far we've fallen. The gospel is crazy impacting the world. And here we're feeling a little bit of what's going to get us back to the place where we need to be. But guess what? There's some pain between here and there. Just telling you, in case you want to leave the room. (laughs) Following Jesus is hard work. It's hard work. One exile who experienced models that purpose, uh, that, that models kind of the purpose and the pathway of exile with great clarity and bravery is the prophet Daniel. He's someone that we're going to be looking at today. He's the kind of brave, I would encourage you also as we're reading this book, to spend some time reading and studying the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Because his story parallels the story that we're facing today and the kind of bravery that he had. Courageous belief to stand up in the face of all things and engage culture is the exact kind of bravery that we need today. The book of Daniel is divided up into two specific distinct sections, chapters 1 through 6, which chronicle the life of Daniel and his friends as they followed Yahweh, right, the God of all gods, into a hostile cultural context. For six chapters, you just see what happens. It's our preview. If we're being being true in, in engaging our faith, what Daniel engages in the first six chapters of his book gives us a preview of where we're going in this country. And I think it it excites me in a crazy kind of way because the Spirit of God is with me, so fear doesn't get to be. Because the Spirit of God is here. But he engages this hostile cultural context, and as our landscape shifts, we've mentioned there's so much to be gleaned from his choice to engage in countercultural environments. Chapters 7 through 12 in the book of Daniel contain four apocalyptic visions. These are visions that prophesy concerning the times and the exiles of the Jews that would come. The end of the time of the Jews in Jerusalem. The end of the time of the Jews up north in Syria, the capital of the northern kingdom. That capital up that way. This book prophesies about the end of that time. About the end of the cushy, comfy, loving Yahweh kind of time that the Jews just enjoyed. Because they, well, they did and then they would again seek the peace and prosperity of the city. This was said After the exile, during the exile, this is before that when Daniel speaks and says, watch out, something's coming and you need to be ready for it. Each of these visions contained an important messages for us today, these four apocalyptic visions. It says, in spite of what we see around us that might persuade us to believe that evil is winning the day, despite the fact of what we see that makes us think that evil is winning the day. I bet some people turned on the news most recently or went outside to a city or on a search and rescue or into a homeless camp or something and said, good night, evil is winning the day. Despite what we see that says that evil is winning the day, these four apocalyptic visions in Daniel remind us that one, God is sovereign, two, he is absolutely in control, and that Jesus in his resurrection power will give God the final victory. These are the biblical worldview 
staples that we need to hold to to get through uncertain times is that the cross wins forever. If we can wake up, Lisa, and remember that the cross wins forever, amen, then there's nothing that'll come at us that can defeat us. Amen? So the context of Daniel, the chronicled life of Daniel and the visions that he received took place between 605 B.C., before Christ, 600 years before Jesus, and 536 B.C., So over this period of time of 70 years, the Babylonian encroachment of Judah happened. So he was saying, hey, it's going to get a little stormy, and then it got stormy. The Babylonians came in and conquered Jerusalem. So that happened during the time of Daniel's reign. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple happened. And the completion completion of three waves of Jewish exiles to Babylon happened. When Babylon came in and took Jerusalem, the people went out in three different waves. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, went out in the very first wave. And his book was written to encourage those living in times of opposition and persecution. This is why this is so important, because it's what we're starting to taste more and more and more every day. Times of opposition and persecution for our faith. Wondering why it is that we're alone. Daniel's story suggests that it's not only possible to survive seasons of exile, but it's actually possible to thrive as a thrive as a follower of jesus in times when things get really hard that we're not playing not to lose you ever seen a team play not to lose they got all kind of like oh we're just trying to protect what we had and the lord said get rid of what you had and take what i got because you can't actually produce anything apart from me anything can you apart can you so take take it take what i got and go to the next place with it It's abandoning everything we know and understand to say, I will follow Jesus into new places and new territories. And although few of us have endured any sort of opposition near the level that Daniel faced, some have. The threat of persecution in our times is getting increasingly more significant. And as Stetzer sets forth in his text, those who are indifferent to the message of the gospel or are standing in opposition to the message of the gospel are rapidly increasing in number, in pace, in presence, in speed, because of the online world that we live in. These two things, paired with each other, is what makes it feel like the church in the West is in uncharted territories. We really are. Never before in our personal histories have we experienced such opposition to our message or to our beliefs about some really specific things. And these are important for disciples of Jesus to know. People are questioning now whether the word of God, whether the Bible is inerrant. What that means is they're saying, well, there could be a lot of errors in here. In fact, we don't even know if this is a reliable document anymore. That's what most of culture is saying. And if you go out onto any college campuses, for the most part, this, this, this holds no weight in the minds of people. Does it hold weight? Yes, because it's living and active. So it doesn't matter what people think. God isn't up for election. He doesn't need a certain number of people to think him true, to be true. Right? That's the confidence we walk with. But in our culture, people are like, this thing is inerrant. It is littered with errors. Right? And it's also, we're not sure if it's infallible anymore. Which means it's, it's probably not even true. Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead. He couldn't have. That's just impossible. 
That didn't happen. And guess what? If that didn't happen, let's go somewhere else on a Sunday morning. But I have staked a claim on my life, and many of you have too, that it did happen. And so we progress forward because we believe that this is true. Everything is founded on whether or not we believe that this is true, and it will never fail. I believe that to be the case. I've staked my life on it, and guess what? It ain't popular. It's not popular. There's questions about whether Jesus' place is one true Savior. Now, it's probably more like coexisting, culture would say. All roads lead to heaven. And maybe truth isn't absolute. Maybe it's just what I feel in the moment is true. You hear these things? This is what's under attack today. And although these are new realities for us, <laughs> they aren't new to Jesus. They weren't new to Daniel. And they sure ain't new to most of our brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the planet. That's why they're sending missionaries, because this mess needs some help. Right? Us. We need help. So we have help. James 1, 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy. The word in the Greek is kara. Consider it pure kara, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, produces perseverance. That's what comes out of difficult times, the ability to take on more difficult times. That's what comes from it. Grit. Let us persevere. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So here's the question I have. This word kara, joy, in the Greek means calm delight. Consider it. Calm delight, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. I don't know if calm delight's the way that I like to describe persecution in opposition to my faith. But James, who endured more than I did, seems to think that we're going to make it through because God is on our side. He's on the side of any person. That's not a political statement. It's been used politically time over and over and again. That's a biblical statement that says God is on the side of anyone who calls on his name. Any person. So I often choose fear when I'm dealing with opposition or persecution. What's going to happen to me? And fear gives way to anger. And anger left unchecked becomes Outrage. Biblical worldview, consider it pure joy. If we can go online and see things that are in opposition to our faith and get calm, instead of outraged, can you imagine the difference in the postings or the lack of postings? Maybe just not put some things down where we thought maybe we'd put something down. Maybe we invite someone out to coffee instead of putting something online in a public forum that will never, ever go away, by the way. Daniel, a place where we can turn to find some calm delight in the midst of our present realities. It says in Daniel chapter 1, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jeroboam, uh, Jerichim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. When Jeroboam was king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God, lowercase g, in Babylonia, and put his treasures in the house of God. So this is the moment that Daniel had predicted. This is coming. 
You're going to be besieged. In fact, you're going to lose everything. The northern kingdom of Israel was besieged by Assyria, so there was a civil war going on even within the family of God. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom had split after Solomon was king. In Assyria, they were both bad, but Assyria, the northern kingdom of, of Israel was much, much worse than the southern kingdom of Judah, and they went faster. In 722 BC, their behavior was so bad, their worship of idols was so bad, the rejection of Yahweh was so bad that, that Yahweh just put these people on timeout. He let the enemy come in politically and just take them out in 722 BC. They went to Assyria, right? That happened then. But Babylon became the new world power after conquering Assyria, right? So Assyria conquers the northern kingdom. Then Babylon comes in and conquers Assyria and becomes the new world power after taking both Assyria in 612 and Egypt in 605. Enter Daniel. That's the context. Politics are happening. Land is changing hands rapidly. Power is changing. And in 605... When Babylon, the new world power, came in and took the southern kingdom, Daniel went first. It happened that the Babylonians had a different conquering strategy than the Assyrians did. See, when the Assyrians conquered somebody, they just took everybody and threw them to the waste pile and built houses on their land, just took their property, took it as theirs. The Babylonians did something a little bit more strategic. They came in and took only the best and the brightest. The peasants and the lower and middle class they left in place. See, they took the best and brightest home to help them in Babylon, and then they elevated people, the peasants of Israel, in their own land to earn their loyalties. Interesting military strategy, right? So they took the best and the brightest to Babylon, and it says in this scripture that Daniel and his buddies were some of the best and the brightest, beginning in verse 3. Then the king ordered Asphanaz chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service, right, some of the Israelites from the royal family and nobility. Who did he take? Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. These are the people that he took. He was to teach them, Asphanaz was, to teach them the language, this is interesting, the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. These Israelites were to be trained up, these excellent, well-educated, aspiring Israelites were to be taught the culture that wasn't theirs. We have an opportunity to learn a culture that isn't ours. And then we have a choice. We can either bow to it, which you'll hear more in the story, right, of Daniel. We can either bow to what we've been subjected to, or we can engage it and stand up and say, not for me. I serve Jesus. Guess what that's going to create? (laughs) A lot of heat and opposition. But it's what we've been put in front of us. It's important to remember that this happened in history before, so when we face it today, we can go back and remember that God is still faithful. Still faithful. It was the Lord's will for Daniel and his friends to go into exile, to learn the ways and the language and the literature of the culture, eventually to bring a people group to his glory. When we stand up, people groups come to the glory of God because they see someone with a conviction that stands up and does what they said they'll do. 
Daniel and his friends modeled faithfulness despite persecution and pressure. Is that something we can do? We're to wait patiently as God's people for his timing, not our own, to be relieved from suffering. Although I've gone through hardship, I've also said this, I have yet to suffer for my faith. Yet to. I've had hardships, but I haven't suffered yet. There are people suffering around the world, and until we suffer, it might be good for us to pray for those who suffer and ask them, hey, can you teach me something about suffering? Because I think I might get some at some point in the not-too-distant future. When you look at the Bible Project, some of the things that they have to say about this is that all human powers become beasts. I think this is important for us to remember, that every single human power will become a beast. That helps me understand what's happening when my culture that I'm grieving and losing is becoming beast-like. I can get outraged about it and try and change it, or I can look to the Word of God and say, Oh, you're doing what you said you would. Faithful, faithful Jesus. Calm delight. It affects the way we will engage a culture if we know that it's on course the way that God intended it to be. I'd be more scared if it didn't feel like that. That might be what convinced me that maybe the Bible wasn't true. That everything was just peaches and ice cream for me and everyone else all over the planet. And there was no persecution. My flesh wants that, but my spirit says that's not the way that it's going. And the way that it's going reflects the truth of this word so we can keep going. Amen? It's a little different. All human powers become beasts, but God will confront the beasts and rescue his world. That's a quote from the Bible Project. All of Daniel's story is intended to motivate faithfulness in us. We can be faithful because he was faithful and God has been faithful to all of his exiles. It's different for us. While Daniel was taken into exile, taken out of a faithful place into a really different culture than his own, it's like a sunny day got cloudy here. It's different for us. Exile has come on us. And we found ourselves in it, which is harder to recognize because we still go to bed in the same bed at night. We still drive the same route to work through the traffic every day. We still go to the same places for leisure and rest. Our culture's changed around it, and we don't like that. I'd rather go somewhere else and be in a different place than someone coming and move my furniture around. Move my fur- And then we get online and then... You change, you move my cheese. <laughs> defend, defend. Like, there's this, we will win back the culture. I, I don't know. I think we say that because we're afraid to live in exile. But exile is the plan. Doggone it if we have a worldview like Jesus. Calm delight. It doesn't mean that we then embrace, hug, love, kiss everything and, and affirm it all. It just means we don't got to like beat other people down because what would you expect? How would you expect someone without a biblical worldview to behave? Like they do. How did I behave before somebody found me with a biblical worldview? Like I did. I'm sure glad I got loved and not condemned or I bet I wouldn't be here today. We love people right where they're at and expect God to do the changing. He will do the changing. It's mine to do the loving and not necessarily engage in the same behaviors. But I can be me. He can be him. Matthew 5, 10 through 16. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. It's still in the gospel. I woke up this morning hoping that God had said something different, but it still said it this morning when I read it. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted Daniel, the prophets, who were before you, you are the salt of the earth. But if a salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything. A generation of many believers who have placed comfort ahead of conviction. Lord, forgive us. We repent. We stand before you and repent that we have worshipped comfort. And I've worshipped comfort. I still worship comfort sometimes, but I'm hoping to do it less than I did yesterday. We repent of those things. Again, it says, but if a salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Matthew five, ten through 16 God uses exile to sharpen, season, and illumine his kids. That's what persecution's for. As he delivers us into greater hardship and cultural tension, he delivers us from the bondages of affluence and apathy. Isn't that beautiful? He delivers us from comfort so that we can be who he called us to be. So the question as we leave today, and as we engage the seriousness, if you pick up this book, um, someone will sell you a copy of this for $10 in the back. We've subsidized this a little bit to make it less expensive. Um, this just goes to reimburse the cost of purchasing the books. But as you engage this text this summer and find yourself in it, Chris Nixon will help in the back to, to, to get these to you. The question is, what has my most immediate response to this cultural exile that has come upon me been like? What has my response been to all the things in culture that I see and disagree with and hate and despise? What's it been like? That's a question I want us to ask ourselves for the summer as we engage this political, cultural firestorm that we will, as a culture, walk into. What's my response to it? Is it glad for the suffering? Or is it just mad that I don't get to be in charge of my culture anymore? Right? And then finally, am I looking, overlooking an opportunity to grow deeper in my relationship with Jesus and my ability to influence others? Am I missing an opportunity right now? And what's my response been? Final statement, and we'll pray from Stetzer on page 29. Christians can try to make their stand by turning back the clock. We can try to reclaim a cultural norm that is dying if not already dead. Or, this is the joy part, we can try to grasp the central truth of the moment in which we live. Understand the challenges and the opportunities we face in this new culture. We have to consider both the movement we are in and the mission we are on. So, Lord, we give you this day. We come before you and say thank you for faithful witnesses like Daniel. Lord, when you led your people into exile, you were doing something new in them to sharpen, to season, and illumine them. Lord, bring it to us. 
I want to be sharper, more seasoned, more illumined than ever before. God, and if hardship is the way, then have your way. But Lord, I believe that we can be found faithful, not led off to death, but led off to a place of death where we are delivered by the God who delivers his children. Lord, let us be salt and light and love with conviction in our culture. Thank you for this place, for this school, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.